school year, they want to go back to their home countries. So none of that is unusual. It's whether or not there are people coming in um, to replace them that is, is the key aspect. And we don't, we don't have those numbers at this stage. Thank you all very much. Great to hear your comments. Stuart Allcroft, Chairman of City Trust, David Roche, President and Global Strategist of Independent Strategy, and our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets before the Fed meeting reaches a conclusion in the early hours of Thursday morning. The ASX 200 in Australia is flat. Not much movement in Japan either. The Nikkei 225 down 0.2%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is up about a third of a percent. Uh, Hong Kong stocks look set to open with a decline of about a third of a percent in just under an hour's time. In the commodities markets, gold is slipping once again at $1,856 an ounce. And Brent crude oil uh, is up further this morning. It's now trading at $74.29 a barrel. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned to Back Chat, which is coming up after the news with Hugh Chiverton and Steve Vines. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods and isolated showers. It is going to be hot, maximum temperature of around 32 degrees. And the outlook is for it to be very hot with sunny periods in the next few days. There will be a few isolated showers. It's 30 degrees right now, 79% relative humidity. It's 8.31 and a half. Here's Samantha Butler with a half-hour news. Epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling is sceptical that a 17-year-old girl contracted a mutant COVID strain from contaminated food packaging. Yesterday, health authorities said a sample of frozen crocodile spare ribs from Thailand in the girl's freezer tested positive. The girl became infected earlier this month, breaking Hong Kong's more than 40 days without an untraceable case. Professor Cowling from the University of Hong Kong's School of Public Health said packaging wasn't a major route of transmission unlikely at this point that infection did occur from contaminated meat packaging. There may be other explanations that haven't been discovered yet. And for this particular possibility, I think the next step is really to look at whether the virus matches. Can we say that it's the same virus on the meat packaging as the virus that infected the girl? Was it the virus on the meat packaging first and then infecting the girl? Or was it the girl had the infection and breathed on the packaging of meat and that's how the virus got there and because it was frozen was able to stay there. So still a lot of questions but we can keep an open mind. More than 600,000 people have now died in the United States from the coronavirus pandemic. Monitored reliably by the Johns Hopkins Hospital, it's the highest tally in the world, a position the country assumed soon after the virus spread across the globe. Here's the BBC's Peter Bowes. The United States has passed what President Biden called the latest sad milestone and a real tragedy. Speaking on Monday in Brussels, he said too many lives were still being lost. But there is a sense that great swathes of America are moving on from the pandemic. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, lifted nearly all restrictions in the state, with more than 70% of the adult population having received at least their first vaccination. In California, the economy has fully reopened for the first time in 15 months. The World Trade Organization has warmly welcomed the resolution of the 17-year dispute between the European Union and the United States over aircraft subsidies for Boeing and Airbus. The WTO Director General Nkozi Okonjo said the two sides had shown that seemingly intractable problems could be resolved. The president of the US-based industry group, the National Foreign Trade Council, is Rufus Yuxa. 
I think it's a very good sign that the two sides really realize that they're facing diminishing returns from fighting with each other endlessly about this. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, China is making great strides towards becoming the third major producer. I wouldn't call this, you know, an absolute final resolution. They've expressed an intention to create a set of agreements which would address a lot of the problems. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiwetan, your co-host today, Steve Vine. Steve, good morning to you. And good morning to you. Today, NATO, G7 and China and the Taishan nuclear issue. Beijing yesterday accused NATO of exaggerating the threat from China and creating confrontation after a vow from the Western allies to work together to counter the challenges posed by China's policies. NATO leaders said on Monday they would join forces against the systemic challenges posed by China. The statement said that China's stated ambitions and assertive behavior present systemic challenges to the system to the rules-based international order and to areas relevant to alliance security. In response Beijing called for NATO to view China's development rationally, stop exaggerating various forms of China threat theory and not to use China's legitimate interests and legal rights as excuses for manipulating group politics while artificially creating confrontations. Previously, it hit back at the G7 for political manipulation after that group criticised China's human rights record in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong. Well, does NATO's statement change things? How can the downward spiral in relations be reversed? Is China threatening or just exercising legitimate rights? Is the NATO consensus fragile? Do all G7 feel the same? And who are China's allies? Uh, let us know your thoughts. You can leave comments on our Facebook page as ever, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email Email backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233-88266. After 9.15, we're discussing those reports of problems at the Taishan nuclear power plant in Guangdong with an, uh, an expert from uh, Australia. Joining us for our first uh, discussion, we have with us now Alejandro Reyes, who's uh, Director of Knowledge Dissemination and Professor at the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Roland Voigt, uh, Associate Professor and Head of the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong. Holok Sang will be joining us later as well. Uh, Mr. Reyes, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's start with you. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So, so we heard this statement from uh, from uh, NATO. Of course, NATO normally concerned with um, with Russia and uh, you, the relationship between Europe and and um, and the uh, US, kind of uh, on on that side of the world. Um, it, 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 you know, how significant is it that they're now sort of uh, talking about China and engaging China? Well, it's significant in large part because, of course, NATO stands for North Atlantic treaty organization, and it's really a transatlantic alliance. So last I looked, uh, China wasn't anywhere near there. Um, and uh, if you go back to, say, 2003, when NATO undertook um, <clears throat> a mission in Afghanistan uh, and was there for you know, leading the mission in Afghanistan for a number of years, that was really landmark in the sense that it was NATO's first sort of off-area, off-region operation because it's really been focused on Europe. Uh, so this is really landmark in the sense that NATO is saying we as a transatlantic organization, we as an organization really focused on the security and stability of North America and Europe 
we now have to think about China as essentially a strategic concern, maybe even a strategic threat. I mean, they look at Russia uh, as a threat, for, for sure, um, but Russia is right there. So, so it is important, I think, um, especially in the context of where you see, for example, uh, the British sending a carrier strike group to the Indo-Pacific, to the South China Sea in particular. And that strike group includes, um, you know, a Dutch frigate. And, uh, of course, the United States is there. So, so NATO has certainly declared that what China's doing uh, is of interest. You, you say, oh, this is a, a, a significant development. Yes. It, it also seems to be a development that reflects public sentiment. I mean, there's been these indications, <clears throat> particularly from polling by the Pew organization, of immense deterioration in regard of China among the world's populations, practically any country you care to look at. Do you think that the, the, the leaders of NATO are responding to public sentiment or leading it? I don't think they're – well, if you're already talking about polls that indicate uh, fall in uh, sentiment uh, towards China, um, I don't think they're really leading it. Uh, I mean, this is uh, possibly a long time coming. Um, I don't think they're really responding to public sentiment. I think it's really a matter of strategic concern when it comes to NATO issues and certainly the G7. Um, I, I would agree that public opinion is, matters to some extent, but the issues there and coming from a bureaucrat who's worked, a former bureaucrat who's worked in the G8, on the G8 when it was the G8, uh, I would say I'm not entirely sure the, uh, what's going on in the polls. Public opinion really matters in terms of shaping the agenda. Uh, is this when they talk about a strategic concern? Then uh, are they are they just making that up? It's really it's an economic threat, and they are just using their military muscle uh, in response. Well, for sure, because uh, for sure, so yes, yes, I, I would say. Look, what happens in the Indo-Pacific doesn't stay in the Indo-Pacific anymore, right? So it, it matters what's going on here, and all other countries are concerned. Let, let, let me tell you, during the time of uh, Donald Trump, where the United States was uh, somewhat AWOL in terms of global leadership, a lot of countries, particularly in Europe, uh, and certainly Japan, South Korea, um, some of the so-called like-minded, and I'm doing air quotes for our listeners, um, uh, were concerned. Well, how do you deal with the issue of China with addressing what's going on with a more robust China, uh, whilst the United States is uh, absent without leave. And uh, there were a lot of discussions during those four years uh, among those like-minded minus the U.S. to say, well, how do you solve a problem like China without the United States? And then hoping that a Biden will come by, come back, a Biden will arrive, and then uh, we can resume perhaps some kind of cooperation to address this important issue, not just of economic globalization, but certainly strategic globalization. I mean, China, of course, says, you know, like the British have no business uh, in the South China Sea. Do they have a point? Well, again, uh, if you think about the pure geography, for sure, uh, you'd say, well, Britain is as far as possibly as far as you can get. Yeah. I mean, it would be more possibly more ludicrous if Chile or Argentina sent uh, a flotilla 
to uh, the South China Sea. But uh, when it comes to partnerships and alliances, you have to you can't think of it these days as simply one nation's singular interest. What happens in Africa, what happens in Latin America, uh, you know, it used, we used to say, you know, what does it have to do with the price of tea in China? In the same way, uh, but the price of tea in China does now matter to people across in, in the other part of the world. Uh, the world is a different place from when we thought of security and strategic um, matters. Uh, the, the UK now, you, you can ask, is it right for them to send a whole carrier strike group on a 28-week um, an operation. Um, that's another issue. That's a, a matter of strategic planning and whether it's the right strategy to, uh, to, uh, to take. But for sure, the UK has a strategic interest in this part of the world. So that brings us, does it not, to the $64,000 question. Only $64,000. Yeah, allowing for inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is, I mean, as you say, I mean, this is is a large naval force in the uh, South China Sea. What's your reading of the willingness of the NATO countries? Because essentially, I believe we're talking about Taiwan rather than anywhere else in that area. What do you think is the willingness of those countries to engage in any actual kind of military action in that arena, should that arise? I don't know if I know the answer to that question. I don't, uh, that's sort of a weird way to answer it. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I, I, I would say the reluct- there is a great deal of reluctance. Um, the United States is the guarantor of security in the region, so it's really more a matter of what the United States does and um, as we know, uh, we still live in the age of uh, ambiguity with regard to the Taiwan Strait. There has been attempts to, or pressure to try to clarify that ambiguity, sorry, to, to at least clarify whether the United States would come to the aid of Taiwan were it to come under some kind of military threat. But at the moment, uh, I don't see... <coughs> Um, uh, in NATO countries other than, say, the United States are um, in, indeed making it uh, jumping at the, uh, at the opportunities, or if, if I use that word, uh, to, to take military action if, if they felt they needed to. I, 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 don't, I don't see that scenario really coming up uh, anytime soon. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Professor uh, uh, Vogt now, uh, Ronan Vogt, Associate Professor and the Head of the School of uh, Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Um, you know, um, NATO was, sort of, was set up, um, you know, after the war for a particular purpose. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, it has extended. It's got quite a lot of members now. And, of course, they all kind of pull in, in different directions. I mean, you know, is, how substantial is it or how much, you know, can it hold together uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, facing down China? Well, I mean, originally when NATO was created, you're right, it was uh, created on the premise basically to keep America in Europe, the Russians out, and the Germans down. That was sort of like the original purpose. And, of course, this has changed quite dramatically since the end of the Cold War. I mean, you know, like so the the whole threat scenario coming that was there until 1989 has basically disappeared. And, you know, Mr. Reyes has already alluded to the out-of-area missions that NATO has conducted ever since. 
Um, at this summit, what is um, new is basically like NATO has always had these kind of fields of operation, and those were basically like you know, the air, sea, land, and cyber uh, security realms. And now they've added another one, which is space. So that's something new. Um, they've talked a lot about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, of course, they have now for the first time this statement on China. Um, I don't know how significant that is. I mean, the, uh, the language in European capitals on China has been sort of gradually toughening up over the last few years. And this seems to me much more sort of like a low common denominator statement um, that, that sort of provides some sort of platform for, for future agreements on what to do with China and how to handle it in some sort of more coherent manner from NATO's point of view. However, um, the NATO countries are, of course, not all on the same page when it comes to China. So there's a very big rift between the United States on the one hand and um, not only the European allies on the other, but also within on the European side, there's also quite significant differences. So, you know, so, so, so I think this is more like the start of a conversation inside of NATO to sort of to, to, to signal that, okay, now we're paying attention to what is happening to China and to China's influence in NATO countries. Could, could we just pick up on that? Because a lot has been made of the different stances, particularly of Germany, for example, supposed to be more dovish in its approach to China. France is supposed to have different concerns from those of the North American countries. Are those differences important, or is this part of the atmospherics? No, these differences are actually very important. So I think there's two things going on. So basically, in the United States, China is one of the few items where basically Democrats and Republicans have some sort of common ground. So, and basically there is a big propensity now in, in the American political system basically to securitize the ties with China, to see them more through the lens of as a security problem rather than an economic prism. Whereas in Europe, this is the opposite. So it's like that Europe has now basically become aware that it has, you know, as the, the footprint of the Chinese economy grows, and China is becoming more of a competitor to Europe rather than a complementary market or something like that, um, that, that it has also developed all kinds of commercial relationships, that, you know, friction in their commercial relationships. And, but they're not necessarily willing to go down that road of securitization with the U.S. And that also has to do because, like, Europe does not have the military capabilities to project any power in, in, in Asia. Any, you know, so this, like, this is... You know, even just sending a frigate through the South China Sea is not going to impress people in Beijing very much. But, but um, European countries are talking, I mean, you've just referred to this, European countries are talking about preventing Chinese firms, particularly Chinese state firms, from having any involvement in their infrastructure, particularly electricity ports, etc. I mean, there does seem to be in Europe a ramping up of resistance to Chinese expansion on the economic front, at least. Yes, there are. There. It's like, so this is, this is um, a development that sort of started maybe five or six years ago, um, that the European capitals have become much more aware of uh, Chinese takeovers of European companies, particularly in sensitive technologies. And I would say a big, big turnaround came in 2015 when the Chinese uh, company Maidea took over a German, a very specialized German robotics firm called KUKA. And at the time, the German government allowed it, but in hindsight, it sort of, you know, basically all parties in, in, in Germany sort of agree that that was a mistake. So they have become a little bit more protective in their, in their approach to Chinese investment in Europe. 
um, not only in sort of technology fields, but in some sort of you know, others. You mentioned utilities as well. And this is also reflected in the language. So if you look at the more recent EU-China uh, papers that the EU has published on EU-China relations, they talk much more about reciprocity. And uh, that is sort of like a signal to toughen up the language a little bit to sort of say like, well, you know, if, if China has certain parts of the economy that it cordons off to European investment, then Europe will do the same to Chinese investment. And, um, you know, so this is definitely a change of, of uh, positions that has taken place over the last five or six years. Professor mm. so Reyes, how do you read that? Well, I mean, if you just have to look at the most recent development, which is that uh, end of last year, Europe and China uh, concluded the um, negotiations on this uh, comprehensive agreement for investment. And that seemed like a big thing because um, Europe seemed to be rushing to get it in before Biden took office because they had this notion that uh, Biden would potentially oppose it uh, if he were um, president. Uh, but now, uh, due to differences between... Uh, disputes between China and the EU regarding human rights, Xinjiang, and sanctions that were placed by uh, China on EU officials and figures, and uh, China reciprocating on placing its own sanctions on European figures. Um, the CAI is essentially on ice, uh, and and that kind of says it all in, in my mind. It, it, you know, it's a big, it's a big, it would have been a big deal, but it's no deal at the moment. Can, can I just one question that occurs to me is, is you know because we're talking about the alliances and, and America's relations whether it's in the G7 and or, or NATO um, does China have does China work in the same way does China have allies in 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 that sense or partnerships does it have a, a group of countries um, that sort of uh, work together well I, I would say that it does. Uh -huh. I mean, if you, it depends on, on, on what you mean, because if you're using the metric of, uh, of maybe Western countries, the, 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 does it have a G7? Does it have a, um, you know, a, um, a NATO of its own? Um, I mean, there are organizations, uh, things that are related to China's relationships with, say, Russia and Central Asia, Chinese partnerships uh, as a dialogue partner with ASEAN, China's participation in ASEAN-centric organizations such as the ASEAN Regional Forum, the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus uh, um, uh, framework and such. So, yes, it does. Uh, and then there's the Belt and Road, of course. Mm. I know, there? of course, and I, I, I was going to get oh, to that. Uh, <laughs> indeed, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, but you're right. The Belt and Road is possibly the, the, the grandest of them all. Uh, which, of course, you know, interesting that um, at the G7, uh, what Biden was stressing was driving values, using values to drive foreign policy, right? A foreign policy for the middle class. Um, and the G7 has come up with its alternative, again, I'm using air quotes, to the BRI, which is uh, this kind of build back better world, B3W, sorry, B3W uh, proposal, um, which would be values driven. That's the top one in, in, on, the, on the fact sheet the White House provided. So if you're driving values, basically you're saying, well, you know, it's us, the democracies versus 
the autocracies, and that's mainly China. And Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General in Washington before the NATO summit, he said, you know, China is not a threat, but we do, they don't share our values. So what we see at the moment is a kind of bifurcation of the world at the moment into some place that is a kind of the like-minded democracies, and then there are the others. And um, I'm not sure that that kind of framework can really help solve the problem of multilateralism today in the sense that multilateralism is not really able to deal adequately with existential global issues such as climate change and indeed the pandemic, COVID-19. And that values uh, tag, is that, has that been devalued? Um, does anyone really buy that anymore? Well, think? it's being bought heavily at the moment. It was bought heavily in the last few days, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a lot of banding about values. But what are these values, right? Uh, and and, and uh, so we, we, we don't really know. Biden has tried to articulate certain values, democratic values, rule of law. Um, of course, China would just say, it's, it's just bullying. It's not. It's nothing to do with values. Well, there we go, right? So so my 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 issue here, uh, uh, you know, as a... As a, a a form of bureaucrat, someone who wants to get things done in terms of the existential, the most important pressing issues of, 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 of globalization, such as the pandemic and climate change, is let's get something done. You've got to make multilateralism great again. You've got to make great globalization great again. You can't do that if you're basically trying to bifurcate, decouple the world into those who have these values that you say are, you articulate. And where was the G7 when it was the G8 with Russia? Where were the values then, I ask? But there we go. But, Dr. Voigt, this is a very interesting discussion because the great debate over values seems to be very much also an echo of the Cold War, communism versus so-called free enterprise or democracy, what <coughs> have you. Are we, are we moving in that direction again? I mean, um, our rest doesn't seem to think that this debate is, is, is a real one. Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily a good way to move forward, you know, this kind of Cold War rhetoric, or, uh, you know, like that, uh, that, that is a sort of like something that is like useful, or even accurate to really identify the source of the uh, friction or the, or the contested things that people that these uh, China and America or Europe have in their, in, their, in, their, in their bilateral relations. But I think there is, there is one point about perceptions. And, um, you know, perceptions really matter in international affairs. And, um, you know, so it's like China might not be, might have the best of intentions, but to other countries it comes across increasingly as being harsh and uh, self-interested. And, uh, and that is something that needs very careful management, you know. So that needs very careful diplomacy to dispel these kinds of perceptions to work against mistrust and uh, likewise it will require a lot of you know good diplomacy on the european and the american part to show to china that uh, they're willing to cooperate on a whole bunch of issues including climate change that's one of the big ones that uh, has always been mentioned the pandemic i mean the post-pandemic world on, on, on many other issues uh, regional security issues as well um, but uh, to sort of to, to, to convey a sort of sense of sincerity that one does want to work together when it's possible and that, would, that neither side really wants to fall into this kind of Cold War trap, really. So, so I think this managing of perceptions is something that is very, very, very um, necessary at this moment. 
And um, I'm not sure whether whether Chinese diplomacy has really seen the the urgency of doing this at the moment. I mean, it is interesting. China has been very proactive in engaging in the battle of ideas. It's ramped up its foreign broadcasting arm. It's had this enormous um, uh, initiative in universities around the world with the Confucius Institutes, etc., etc. I mean, it... I think it's not unfair to say that most of these initiatives, although they've been on quite a large scale, have been largely unsuccessful. Well, I mean, like, to some extent, yes, to some extent, no. I mean, like, there's, there's definitely been, I think, in the last few years, if I look at Europe in particular, and many different European countries that have very different foreign policy traditions and very different sort of commercial footprints in China, but there has been... A, grow, a trend that I think is identifiable that has basically seen China in more negative terms. That's something that we've seen, and that's something that, like, basically, like Chinese diplomats and uh, you know, like, need to need to work with now. And uh, you know, maybe the the recipes or the mechanisms they've used in the past have not proven to be very effective. So it's time to change them, then you know, and to maybe change the rhetoric a little bit, change the uh, the mode of delivery of China's message a little bit. You know, so that's something that also needs to be accommodated. Can I can I make one quick point? Could okay. you hold it because we're just oh, coming out to the news at nine o'clock. We we can go straight back to you uh, after uh, after that. Uh, but uh, uh, hold that thought for for a moment. Uh, we're talking about uh, NATO G seven and uh, China with uh, the, those developments uh, this week. Later, we're also going to be talking about uh, uh, the uh, uh, Taishan uh, nuclear power plant. What's actually going on there? Talking to an Australian academic uh, on that issue. Uh, we want to hear from you, of course, uh, as ever. You can call us on two three three eight eight two six six or drop us a line back. .hk is our email address, or you can comment on our Facebook page as well, of course. The weather now uh, before the news. Sunny periods and isolated showers. Hot temperatures up to 32 degrees and a bit warmer in the new territories. Uh, very hot with sunny periods in the next few days. The latest readings, 30 Celsius, and the relative humidity is now at 78%. Back in three minutes. And confirmed by the Israeli military. It said they were in retaliation for Hamas's sending of balloons carrying incendiary devices into southern Israel. A Hamas radio station said one target was a training camp. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Backchat on a Wednesday morning with Steve Vines and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking uh, geopolitics. We're talking about NATO, G7 and uh, China. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, the nuclear power plant at uh, Taishan uh, with an Australian uh, academic. Uh, uh, thinking uh, through those statements from NATO and the G7 this uh, week, especially as regards uh, China, uh, we have with us now Dr. Uh, Roland Voigt, who's Associate Professor and the Head of the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong, Alejandro Reyes. Director of Knowledge Dissemination, Professor at the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong. We're also joined now by Holok Sang, a Senior Research Fellow at the Pan Sutong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. Our email address, once again, backchat at rthk.hk. We've got a few emails uh, to, to uh, air and uh, to uh, discuss, but uh, Professor Reyes, just before we cut you off, just before uh, nine o'clock, you've had a thought in mind. Yeah, very quickly. Mm. You know, about this values thing, you know, I don't want to overplay it. I would say it's still very much countries act in their interests, right? And and they will articulate values to um, um, give uh, support to to whatever actions they take in their interests. Now, if you just if you just go by what Vladimir Putin told NBC News, 
the most important value, he sees it as predictability and stability, which probably coincides with, I mean, if one can call them values, uh, with, with what China sees. Um, but look, one man's values is another man's interest, right? So if you think about the G7 articulated a vaccine <coughs> diplomatic effort, well, that's what China's been doing last uh, many months. So is there no coincidence of values there? You think of BRI, you now think of the B3W. So uh, again, it's, a, it's not really just a matter of values for sure. It's certainly always, always a matter of national interest. All right, some uh, emails. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, who I think is an American. Correct me if I'm wrong. And Jimmy says, uh, Biden is an old man stuck in an old time. The creation of NATO was to provide a defense security blanket for a crippled Europe against a possible communist aggression. 1954 saw the creation of CETO, when, Southeast Asia, uh, when China and Russia got involved in a Korean civil conflict. 1965 saw America involve itself in a Vietnam civil conflict and the collapse of CETO. America must cure its problems at home. America is unable to solve problems of other nations until it helps itself. Yankees stay home. That's, uh, I think, from uh, Jimmy. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, MT says the world's oceans are today being plundered by the major powers to meet their food supply needs. It's food security that motivates these conflicts and sea claims, such as seen in the South China Sea with China's sea grab claims, while China's fishing fleets of more than 200 are seen in South American and African waters. Um, uh, James G says so much of military of China's military posturing and adventures in the region are really directed at its domestic population. Xi's vision of militarily strong and assertive stance merely acts to adjunct the growth of nationalism. After all, nobody believes in communism anymore, right? Um, thanks very much indeed for that. Back chat at rthk.hk. And uh, uh, B says, uh, what's your speaker's take on the Pacific? It seems that G7 are worried that China could strengthen its influence in the Pacific. UK and France retain significant sovereignty over the Pacific. Is that uh, a worry? Maybe we'll turn to that in a moment. Um, Holok Sang is, uh, is with us now, as a, research, a senior research fellow at the Pan Tong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. Uh, Professor Ho, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for, for, for joining us once again. What, what do you make of that, those, those NATO uh, statements and, uh, to a lesser extent, the uh, G7 statements uh, earlier this week about China? Well, I think I agree very much uh, to the speaker just now. Uh, as far as values are concerned, there is really not that much difference between Western values and Chinese values. And... Uh, um, uh, I think the common denominator is that we all want peace and we all want harmony and everything, prosperity, everything, you know, and uh, human rights, all those things, you know. But um, um, behind the talk about values is always national interest. And uh, uh, national interest is about, uh, as far as uh, some of the Western powers are concerned, it's about hegemony. And, uh, and I think that is what, uh, what, what is at stake here. And... Uh, uh, when uh, the uh, G7 statement talked about uh, the systema systematic threat, and I think that is really nonsense. You know, if it is about uh, 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 China's uh, uh, claims and so on, uh, as far as the, the China... 
Sorry, Professor Ho, we're, we're, we're losing you. Uh, let's see if we can maybe uh, call you back and see if we can find something uh, a, a little bit more stable. Uh, in the meantime, here's, here's another e email. This is from uh, Will, uh, who says, Can you ask your expert, I'm not sure which one, uh, how many U.S. allied bases and weapons groups are in Asia-Pacific within striking distance of mainland China? And how many overseas Chinese bases within striking distance of the continental United States? Uh, perhaps, uh, Professor Voigt, do you want to respond to that? Well, America has a, a military presence, I mean, in the Pacific, this part of the world, in many, many locations. I mean, it has, you know, 25,000 troops in Korea, it has in Japan, mainly at the port of Yokosuka, and then on Okinawa, and then it has a major uh, sort of uh, ground in Guam, which is where it's basically locating uh, or concentrating its sort of Western Pacific forces. And then it has, you know, like uh, access in Darwin, at the port of Darwin. In, in Australia. So it has a number of locations around this world where so America basically has the capabilities to project power in the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And, um, uh, and China, China doesn't have an equivalent. China is not a direct threat to the, uh, to the continental United States. No. Okay. Can, right. <laughs> can, can I add yeah. a little bit to that? Of course. Yeah. So, so if you if you just put within context, NATO suddenly saying, well, you know, there's a systemic issue related to what China's doing, and then you see what uh, Biden has been doing since he's taken office, has taken up the the Trump um, cudgel, if you will. Uh, sorry, maybe that's a bit too tough on, on Biden, but uh, he's taken up the, the, with the Quad, trying to turn the Quad, the quadrilateral security dialogue, uh, into something more than it was, which it started out as a humanitarian, coordinated humanitarian effort uh, to get India, um, Australia, Japan in on trying to do more strategic issues and, and potentially turn it into uh, a security framework for the region. Um, what would you think in Beijing if you're sitting there and you're seeing some kind of um, pincer movement, if I can, again, sorry, maybe that's a bit tough, uh, coming from uh, Europe and coming from the Pacific, the eastern and western Pacific? Um, it's an interesting question to ask. Mm. Well, yeah, uh, Holok Sang, are you still there? Yes, yes, I'm here. Yeah. Okay, I think we've got, a, we've got a better line now. Yeah, you were talking about um, American hegemony, you were saying. That's, that's yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Uh, um, of course, America is very concerned about its, its, own, its own national interest, but that national interest must not be at, at, at the expense of other, uh, other countries' uh, uh, um, uh, bottom line. And I think uh, that, should be, that should be clear. And uh, uh, we are all concerned about human rights, and uh, unfortunately... You know, different people have different interpretations about human rights. And uh, uh, as far as China is concerned, uh, feeding the people, uh, making sure that they, they, they enjoy economic prosperity and uh, they have freedom of movement and uh, freedom of religion and all those things is, is important. But uh, um, America thinks uh, otherwise, you know, because uh, 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 America thinks that it's important that people people have uh, the right to choose the, uh, the leaders through the ballot box. But I think in, in, in leadership, and it's not a dynasty. You know, I've always maintained that uh, China has a transition of leaders, you know, through a, a, a kind of um, 
meritocracy, which is a selection based on past performance uh, uh, against uh, some criteria, like serve, uh, as to as far as how 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 well they serve people. Uh, so it's just a different system, different way of doing things. And I think we should respect different systems. And instead of calling China system uh, totalitarian or um, uh, violating human human rights, I, I think. America should wake up and uh, uh, try to put its house in order, as uh, as one of your your readers in in, in his email uh, um, is, uh, mentioned. Is, isn't the difference now, though, that China has become uh, more assertive and has been uh, attempting to um, project uh, power, uh, especially soft power, uh, in a much yes. more active way? Yes. With, yes. With yes, I think that is true. That uh, is true. Uh, uh, and and, yeah, and occasionally that that, has, that, uh, yeah. has, that seems to have backfired in some senses that the the yeah. the, the, the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy just seems to have annoyed people and seems to have uh, got people's backs up in in Europe and in Southeast Asia and India and of course the list of you know sort of conflicts that are grumbling on it just seems to be uh, increasing so that, that it seems to be failing in that respect it seems to be um, losing uh, influence and losing friends. Well, uh, I really think so. Uh, first of all, being uh, more assertive, that is true. That is, more, that is true. And uh, for example, over the uh, uh, Delta Islands, you know, uh, China had, um, had tried to, um, uh, you know, take this line, uh, let this dispute be put aside and uh, for the moment, you know, but uh, uh, Japan has been more and more assertive over the years, you know. And uh, many of the Hong Kong people and uh, uh, people from Taiwan, people from the mainland, they have they have uh, risked their lives. And one of my one of my friends, my classmates, you know, uh, at University of Hong Kong, actually got drowned and and got killed, you know, in one of those campaigns. And that was at a time when China was, you know, uh, the official line was not so assertive, you know. But now, I think a lot of the uh, um, people in, in China taking relief, you know, because Chinese government is more assertive now. You know, it's something that, that has been uh, 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 decided as, uh, as very unfair to, the, to, to China. You know, that's from uh, 1971, you know, when I was at the University of Hong Kong, many of my classmates, and I also myself attended some of those uh, uh, um, uh, uh, rallies, you know, uh, protesting against this transfer of Delhi uh, Islands to, to, to Japan, you see. So China is more assertive, but it's asserting the rights that it has always claimed right before uh, the PRC, you know, like those, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the so-called nine dash lines. Okay, that, that is actually uh, uh, um, uh, based on historical uh, claims uh, dating from the Kuomintang uh, times, and it's, uh, 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 but, but people, you know, the Western media is trying to portray it as something that the PRC is, is, is becoming more aggressive and uh, claiming more and more for itself. You know, that is not, that is not the case. Dr. Ho, it's always good to hear from you defending the uh, Communist Party's line and talking about the Western media as though it's a unitary organisation. But isn't the fact of the matter that, that simply in the battle of ideas, China is not winning? People are not queuing up round the block to get into the PRC as they are into the Western democracies. Um, I People think you may be right, unfortunately. 
And that is because, uh, uh, um, you see, I have been maintaining this. Um, you see, my own line is that China should actually uh, um, uh, um, allow more freedom of the press so that it will be able to uh, win uh, audience, you know, because right now people just put off the official line. Anything comes coming from the from from from, from China's official press. That's that's just official, you know, and, and and it's not trustworthy. But on the other hand, um, the Western media have the have a claim to freedom of the press, and so <clears throat> uh, what they uh, talk about carry a lot more weight. Unfortunately, a lot of those Western media have been. Uh, <clears throat> kind of monopolized by, by, by different interests, you know, and, and they are not really as free as is thought. You know, like, for example, I, I just give you the example, this uh, um, <coughs> lies over Iraq's um, uh, 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 weapons of mass destruction. At the time, the entire Western media is, all, is almost unanimous. That, that's complete and utter nonsense. Uh, that's complete and utter nonsense, and you know it's nonsense. The exposure <laughs> of those lies came through papers yeah, and but, operate but at the time, freely. Yeah, at, at, the the time, time, at the time, you've obviously just, you just obviously disregard information you don't like. At the time, I can cite to you the papers at the time, not afterwards, who are against it. Yeah, In Britain, for example, media? The Guardian. Is the Guardian is, is that not a mainstream media? It's the, it's the biggest online um, uh, circulating newspaper in Britain, bar the Daily Mail. The New York Times, is that not mainstream media? Goodness me. You know, you can't just come on air and make these absurd claims without any backing whatsoever. Uh, I thought the New York Times supported the invasion, didn't it? They, they, they ran numerous columns opposing it. Numerous. OK, they did. They did. That, that's true. Um, you know, Alexander Reyes, what, what, do you, what do you make of this? Do you think that this, I mean... China is just really doing what it's always done and holding, sticking to its claims uh, that it's always made? Or has it, uh, you know, is there a change of policy, a change in approach? I think certainly in recent years there's a more robustness um, in China's approach. Um, but look, uh, it's a major global economy, uh, economy in the world. So uh, it feels it's time to throw its weight around after the global financial crisis where it perceived the West uh, showed its faults. Um, and now the pandemic, um, you know, uh, um, Andrew Cuomo says the pandemic is like a, a tide that has pulled away. And now you see all the faults and stuff that are under the surface. Um, I think China has seen that and, and, and it's possibly... It, is it, is it, it, it as simple can, as that, that America has always thrown its weight around and now China wants to go and America doesn't well, want China to have a go? Uh, look. Last night I was listening to Morning Joe in the United States and a commentator from the New York Times said that oh, China wants to dominate the world, right? So, you know, robustness and assertiveness in foreign policy doesn't equal we want to dominate the world and therefore do you formulate policy uh, towards China with the assumption that it's going to, wants to dominate the world? Uh, I mean, you know, you have to form policy. And I think what the Biden administration is doing is a good thing. The framework they have, collaborate on one lane, compete in another lane and confront in the third lane. That, that's a good framework, I think, for bringing some clarity and some stability and predictability to the relationship with China. The idea is, can you put as much as possible into the collaboration lane as possible, you know, as you can?
And I, I would try to work towards that as a, from the, from the um, perception, from the perspective of someone that would like multilateralism to work. Dr. Voigt, if you were, if you were in, in uh, Beijing now, if you were in Zhongnanhai, um, how would you settle this? How would you de-escalate the situation? How would you calm things down a little bit? Well, I think like the, um, uh, we need to remember that you know, countries use the resources at their disposal. So China now has many, many more resources at its disposal than it used to have 20 or 30 years ago. And it's only natural that it would use those to its advantage. So every country would do that. Uh, so there's nothing really unusual about this kind of, um, um, you know, new kind of robustness, as one of the previous speakers has mentioned it. I think the, uh, we're already seeing a gradual shift that um, in, in the policymaking circles in Beijing that people are realizing that it's like that China needs to engage on a more cooperative footing with uh, some of its biggest, biggest trading partners. Uh, that is also something that, um, you know, has, uh, from President Xi himself has sort of said that recently in a speech. So I think, like, gradually this kind of realization is, is going on, and that is something that I hope will be reciprocated in the West. Okay, some uh, comments uh, Some comments from listeners to, to, to finish off. Uh, Jimmy, uh, who earlier said Yankees stay home, said the PLA Navy, Indonesia, and the U.S. Navy conducts uh, annual sea exercises in Hawaii, USA, annually in the month of June. Uh, do you mean that, the PLA Navy? Uh, Mike, uh, who says, yes, Hugh, that Mike. Uh, values, just talk. NATO and Euro love Biden because he writes the checks. He kowtows now to Europe. They restart the building of the Russian-German pipeline, putting billions in Putin's pocket. Putin shut down the pipeline in the States. We now need to buy oil from our enemies, Iran, and Russia is laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> the pandemic is over. Uh, California is open. No body masks, no deaths. Still some new cases, but it's believed by many that the inaccuracy of the COVID test is now more apparent. Many fault positives and negatives. I'm enjoying my stay in California, uh, says uh, Mike. Uh, Matthew says, uh, in response to Holok Sang, uh, is there any limit on the disinformation Backchat will allow guests and correspondents to promulgate? Did I just hear Holok Sang falsely say that the CCP's definition of human rights included freedom of religion? I'm not sure Uyghurs or Christians in the mainland would agree. Why don't the Backchat hosts challenge uh, this nonsense? Um, Steve does his bit for uh, challenging. Um, uh, Alan uh, says, Backchat, talking about the Quad and China feeling threatened, this is a reaction to China attacking each country separately, e.g. China's unrelenting economic warfare against Australia for, among other sins, not allowing Huawei to control its telecommunications, charging Chinese businessmen who bribed politicians, asking for an inquest into the sources of COVID, shows what happens if other countries do not stand together. The wolf-warrior mode that China has used is designed to make Xi look strong domestically. It simply creates enemies overseas, but no one dares change this for fear of offending uh, Xi. Um, thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, thank you very much indeed to, to our guests uh, this morning, to uh, Alejandro Reyes, the Director of Knowledge Dissemination and Professor at the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Roland Voigt, Associate Professor, Head of the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the Hong Kong uh, University, and Holok Sang, uh, Senior Research Fellow at the Pan Sutong Economic Policy Research Institute at uh, Lingnan University. And I think, yes, one more comment on, on the uh, Facebook. Uh, uh, Horatio says the CCP has miscalculated 
fixated on the Uyghur situation and to some degree Hong Kong. It's also overestimated the Belt and Road Initiative. Hopefully the world has some justice left and someone bites China's behind. Um, thanks very much indeed for uh, all the thoughts. Backchat at rthk.hk uh, is our, our email address. One more comment from John, who says, Most of your guests are thoroughly mired in the 20th century. Only one speaker, only in the programme, noted that security threats in the 21st include cybersecurity and outer space activities. Saying that China poses no threat to North America ignores that China's activities in both the cyber and space domains represent real threats to all the NATO countries and certainly warrant a response. That comes uh, from John. We wanted to turn uh, finally today to uh, what's going on uh, in uh, Guangdong at the uh, Taishan uh, 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 nuclear power station. Uh, the uh, French energy company uh, EDF is uh, investigating a potential issue uh, linked to a build-up of uh, inert gases at the uh, power plant. Uh, that probe comes after CNN uh, reported that the American government was assessing a report of a leak at the Taishan uh, power station. Um, to uh, uh, give us his assessment, uh, we're joined now by Nigel Marks, Associate Professor at the School of Electrical Engineering and Computing and Mathematical Sciences at Curtin University uh, in Australia. Professor Marks, good morning to you. Good morning. Hi, thanks so much indeed for joining us. So it's it's kind of confusing. I, I've got to say the the reports and the kind of counter reports. Um, basically, the authorities saying nothing to see here. Uh, what, what do you make of the uh, the substance? Uh, what what do we actually know about what's what's been uh, happening? Yes, everyone's being very careful what they say. It's uh, and I like your expression, nothing to see here. It's uh, and, and clearly that's not the case, but. Um, by the same token, it's not as though we have some uh, nuclear disaster on our hands. So in a sense, uh, everything that's being said in the press by, by CNN and uh, also uh, from the Chinese government is in a sense uh, correct. But if you look very closely, they, they do have a, a minor technical problem with uh, what is a, a very new reactor. And I think they'll be uh, rather irritated by it. And I think the, the world just needs probably a bit more openness uh, on exactly what's going on because um, nuclear reactors are a bit like uh, airlines. You, you can't uh, do these things in separation. We all learn from each other's mistakes and they've obviously got some issue here that they're working through. Oh, I wonder whether the, the, the point that you just touched on is, is perhaps the crucial one, transparency. What is the record of China when it comes to transparency about what's going on in its nuclear facilities? Well, I think this is really a, a bit of a test for them because China has become a, a big player around the world. They have nearly 50 reactors. They're ranked number three on the list. And this is probably the first time that they've had the spotlight on them. Like other countries are, have had their, their turn where things have gone wrong. The U.S. with uh, Three Mile Island, and of course, uh, Japan with uh, Fukushima, uh, and then USSR with what happened in Ukraine. Uh, but it's it, it, it's a it's a it's a bit of a test of character to be honest, and there's really nothing to be gained by trying to say nothing to see because that that doesn't uh, help anyone, and it doesn't appear as though there has been uh, what the Atomic Energy Agency calls a radiological incident, um, but clearly something isn't isn't quite right, and they just it, they just need to be completely open, and, and that's probably something that historically the present administration finds a bit difficult to do. 
All right, uh, an email from uh, Alok, uh, who says, Good morning. If it can be ensured that the radiation is much below the norms and all safety concerns are addressed, nuclear power is a key towards the carbon zero emission goals set for 2030 by the UN. Since as yet yet suitable, sustainable carbon zero fuels have not been commercially developed. Therefore, one shouldn't totally shun away nuclear fuel or ask for shutting down of nuclear power plants. Rather, the safety norms for uh, handling nuclear energy uh, must be the focus. Uh, James says, does anyone trust what the Hong Kong administration says about Taishan Power Station? Hong Kong was never informed punctually when there were incidents at Daya Bay. Let's enjoy the bright red sunsets. To misquote Deng Xiaoping, it doesn't matter if the power station is black or white as long as it exceeds quotas. Uh, James also says, look forward to discussion on Junius Ho, his redneck, and Carrie Lam's sudden love of pink dollars. That's uh, from uh, James. Thanks very much indeed. Backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, uh, Professor Marks, I mean, I mean, uh, broadly, that's true all over the world, isn't it? That uh, the authorities consistently, in so many cases, uh, seem to downplay uh, nuclear accidents. Uh, no wonder people are wary. True up to a point, but you know, in fairness, the um, if you go onto the International Atomic Agency's uh, website, they they are actually remarkably uh, honest with all sorts of things that go on all around the world. I was just having a look at it yesterday for the most recent things, and it's in all the some of them are medical isotopes and other things are little things that go wrong, and other things are more serious things that go wrong. But there is there has been a, for, for the most part a fairly uh, good degree of, uh, of honesty around the world. Like I said, it is a bit like the way airlines work. But, but, this, but, this, really, this, norm- but this only came out because of CNN, didn't it, in this instance? Well, I think CNN have um, got hold of a, uh, a memo that's been sent from the, the French company uh, that's associated with, or that's a part owner of, of the reactor. And it would seem that they are uh, perhaps seeking some help from the, the US to share some technology to help them solve this problem. Like there are complicated US export controls. So it could be one of these things that um, the, the, on the French side they, they need a bit more help from the US or it could be that they're on the, the Chinese their Chinese partners are saying, like you said, nothing to see and they're trying to, you know, push the needle to get them to actually acknowledge they need to uh, fix this technical uh, problem. So it's it's a little bit hard to say. Um, like the the US has been very cautious about uh, what what's going on. But I think the only people will only be happy when there's um, when there's openness about about what's happening. And because it does involve a joint venture between a uh, you know two different nations, they they just need to let everyone know what they figured out. And the other thing is that like this particular. Uh, Reactor design, the so-called EPR, it's now really just known by its acronym, is of intense issue, intense interest to uh, the Finnish government, who have a, a a terrible project that's run nearly 15 years uh, late, uh, and the French also have the same reactor, and the UK are about to build two. So the other nations have a lot of skin in this game. So it's really it's in China's interest and in the in the French interest to let everyone know what's going on. Um, because this, it, it's not it's not ideal. It's a bit like having a brand new car where you, I don't know, you have a, a flat tyre that you weren't expecting and, you know, it's not like you're going to throw out the car, but you've got to figure out how on earth that happened and, and fix it. And could you put this in some sort of international perspective for us? How safe is nuclear power compared to other forms of electricity generation? Well, it's, 
it, it's very hard to say. If you um, if you measure it by fear, then uh, like nothing frightens people like nuclear. Um, if you were to look at you know the the accidents that have happened from I don't know like coal mining. There's a lot of coal mining in Australia. Um, that's a terribly dangerous thing. All sorts of people have died that's from that. It's in China, of course. Um, yeah, it's, I, mining is very dangerous. So it's a it, it, it all depends on which metric you use. Um, I think given the the present push for uh, to reduce CO2, it's very hard to see how the major industrialised nations can do it. Uh, by ignoring nuclear, at least in the short term, um, it's uh, it's if you look at the actual numbers, it's not it, it, it compares well. But you know, obviously, people look at, at disasters like what happened in in Japan, and it's uh, it's made a quite a large area uh, uninhabitable for a long time, and, and nothing really compares to that. So it's a it's almost in an impossible situation, but if it's done properly, it works very well. Like all through Europe, there's reactors everywhere. You can't you can't travel anywhere in Europe without being somewhere near a nuclear reactor, and it doesn't stop anyone travelling to Europe. Well, except for COVID, I guess. But it's uh, it's uh, it, the standards are very high, and it's all it is very easy to measure it. Like no one is in any danger at this particular plant, for example, let alone anywhere else or, or yourselves in Hong Kong. So it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's technically complicated, and, and openness is the only, the only solution, really. Okay. Well, Professor Marks, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Nigel Marks there from the School of Electrical Engineering, Computing and Mathematical Sciences at Curtin University uh, in Australia. Just a few comments to uh, finish off. Jim says, Joseph Biden is an out-of-time war mongrel attempting to distract the American voters from the security crisis on America's southern borders. Uh, and uh, TC says uh, a main, on Facebook, a main difference between American hegemony and Chinese hegemony is that although American power may not be perfect, it often considers the interests of their partners. It better understands the need of a cooperative uh, partnership. And TC also says, good on Steve Vines for calling out Holok Sang's BS. Thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, uh, TC, uh, uh, just a, couple, a few uh, emails that also are regarding uh, yesterday's dis- discussion. Uh, Bob says uh, regarding Mike, uh, I think it's time to issue health warnings prior to reading his messages and certainly before allowing him airtime. Uh, from his opinions on vaccines and COVID-19 in general to statements denying mankind's involvement in climate change, he's shown himself to be a risk to public health. Regular listeners are all too familiar with Mike's views, but he should ensure that newcomers are warned of his history. Uh, uh, Jim